All right. Good morning. That was loud. That's good. Uh, that's good for the. Why well, do we? We do have the air conditions going over there, so it might be better to be a little bit louder. So, um, we made it to, to chapter five. First uh, John chapter five. Uh, finished up that um, big section on love and where love originates from, and and so. John, he continues on that thread a bit here in this next passage, uh, but he kind of expounds on these, um, these three marks. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, these three marks of, uh, of a Christian, birthmarks. Uh, you can coin them if you'd like, uh, because John, as we've spoke about before, John speaks of the new birth more than any other letter in the entire scriptures, any other book in the entire scripture. So first, John is speaking on that new birth. Um, so if you want to know more about the new birth and continue to study about the new birth, go back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, and, and dive back in, uh, starting from the beginning of, of, of this letter. So chapter 5, uh, we're going to go through the first five verses here this morning. Uh, so as always, take heed of that perfect, inerrant, awesome word of God as I read this morning. Verse 1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For anyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the victory. The victory that we have in your Son, Jesus. Uh, that he stands triumphant over sin and death. And he has called us according to the victory in which he has uh, gained on the cross and his resurrection. Father, I pray this morning that your spirit guides us in the truth of your scriptures illuminates what you'll have us to understand and, and to use that to bring glory and honor to you. Father, we pray all this in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so we're going to look at these birthmarks. Uh, the first one here in the very first verse here, John, he asserts, he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So John here, he, he, as I just stated, he employs this birth analogy. Um, and uh, again, he continues to use this throughout the entire letter of being born again. And, and so when we think about the arrival of, uh, of a new child, we've had that happen twice in the, the time frame of this congregation, uh, where there's been two new uh, blessings, uh, two uh, infants born, and so we're all familiar with that process in that of uh, this new child being born into a family. There's two undisputable facts that accompany every single physical birth. Uh, the first one is each infant enters into a family regardless of that family's functionality. They could be very dysfunctional. They could be... Uh, not dysfunctional, it doesn't matter. Uh, every family's born, or every baby's born in that family despite 
of the functionality of that family. And secondly, a newborn inherits physical traits and characteristics of family members, typically the, the parents. Um, and then as the inherited characteristics uh, begin to take shape, uh, they become more discernible, more apparent as a child grows. Uh, they continue to, to be uh, look more like their parents. They start to take on these mannerisms of their parents. And, and, and so you see that. It becomes very discernible uh, to the eye. And so the Christian journey somewhat mirrors this pattern. Uh, a Christian is an individual who has undergone a, a, a new birth, a spiritual rebirth. A term, again, frequently used here by John, uh, and he used it to coin the salvation experience. One who has been saved by faith uh, through Christ. And so he states that as, as the new birth, being born of God. Uh, the salvation experience here, he, he, he notes, he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Has been born of God, this new birth. Uh, and notice the, uh, the tense of that verb. It says, has been born. Has been born. In past tense. So it's comparable to the physical birth. Right? A spiritual birth is, is the same sense of the, the physical birth in that it's, it's irrevocable. It's irrevocable. Once born, always born. So once someone is physically born, they've always born. They, they've been born. They have been born. So it is with the spiritual birth. Uh, the, this permanence is equally applicable to the spiritual birth. So the, the, the crux of this new birth is faith. Faith in Christ Jesus. A, a faith that John, he assumes to be genuine uh, in more than a mere intellectual agreement. Such faith is accompanied by the new birth. And so we're going to dig more into that here as we kind of unfold this passage. But um, think of the, uh, the affection a child holds for their parents. It's distinctive. Uh, when we grasp the, the, the full scope of, of God's hand in our redemption, in our salvation, Love for him begins to flow naturally. As we spoke about in the last few weeks of that, this passage before in John chapter 4, the originator of that love. Right? That's the love of God imputed into a person and then therefore is a luminary effect outward. So it starts to flow naturally, this love. And so for those born of God, those receivers of, of Jesus as Lord and Savior, loving God starts to become second nature. Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, they affirm that those who belong to God have been endowed with, with the Spirit, allowing them to cry out, Abba, Father. They put it like an illustration this way. Um, Think of a, a, a child being upset uh, with their parents and they, they storm off and they, they run through the next room, stub their toe on the coffee table. Instantly, like, 
changes their direction and, and they, they, they run right back to their parents because right? they've just been hurt and they know right where to go. Right? It's, it's because to flow naturally, knowing who your father is, knowing where to go, who your parents are, just as that of who our, knowing who our Heavenly Father is. And so we are able to, to cry out, Abba, Father, rather than stubbing their toe and, 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 and spewing out blasphemous words. Rather, it's a cry out to Abba, Father, to our Father in Heaven. So the, the privilege of being in the family grants us the ability to approach the Almighty, not merely as a, a distant deity, but as our Father, as our Father who, who art in heaven. And what a joyful thing to know that we have a Father uh, in heaven who is watching and presiding over us. So John here, he asserts that whoever loves the Father also loves those who are born of the Father. So once integrated into a family, it is natural to love the Father. However, John, he John's point here is that within the family, there are also siblings. And if one's affection is directed towards the father, it is given that this love will encompass all the family members. So, so many of us are, are familiar with having siblings in our family, our physical family. Right? And in the process of growing, growing up, we must learn to love our siblings. Now, this, I think many of us can attest to this, can, can prove very challenging at times. Uh, it requires effort from, from both sides, effort and, and understanding. In the same way, within God's family, uh, love for fellow believers is, is it's an essential birthmark. It, although sometimes it may be difficult, that love, that love that, that transcends, that love from the Father that is within you, it supersedes all human expectation of love. So it rises above the normality of love. It becomes this essential birthmark of those who are in Christ. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul, he talks about love. He, he, he dives into the nature of it. Uh, and in that, one of his assertions is that love does not keep a record of wrongdoing. And it's, it scarcely even notices when others transgress. Yeah, so frequently here, in, as finite humans, you know, we're inclined to sometimes maintain a, a, a mental record of, of complaints. It's part of our fallen nature. And when couples argue, you know, one party might resurrect a past transgression from over a year ago, resurrecting these things that should stay dead. You did leave that door open one time. <laughs> we have this long running joke in our house of a shed door that was left open about 20 years ago. It's a joke now. It's not, we're not resurrecting this. Let's put this to death. <laughs> I saw this stare in my corner here. <laughs> there's no cause. There's, there shouldn't be any cause to revisit these type of incidents. Uh, consider, consider if God treated us in the manner that we sometimes treat others. 
What if God was like, imagine if he's like, you know, you've committed this sin about a month ago. Yeah, I forgave you, but, you know, let's revisit this. Let's revisit this. Let's talk about this. Let's let's discuss these, these sins. No. When he says he takes them and casts them as far as the east is from the west, he means it. He's truthful. And so we are to be likened to our Father who is in heaven. We are to be likened to Christ. And, and, and that includes not keeping a record of wrongdoing. Uh, if we ever if we forgive somebody, it's, it's it. It's done. It's, it's cast as far as the east is from the west. And so love. You know, we've, we spoke on that a lot uh, the past few weeks. So that being that first birthmark that is uh, accompanying the, the true believer. Uh, secondly, John here, the second distinct mark, closely intertwined with love, uh, and that is uh, obedience. The, the big O word, obedience. Uh, verse 2 here, John delivers a very clear and very impactful statement. He says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Imagine being in the military and receiving like precise orders. These are your orders. They're precise, exactly what you need to do. Maybe it's like, what would your impression be of a soldier who, who grasped these orders verbatim, that he can articulate them to the T, exact word for word, but yet never put them into action. What fate would such be for that soldier? The commanding officer would probably pay no attention, give no heed to that soldier's ability to recite the orders. So the the, the true litmus test lies in, in whether the soldier carries out the commander's directives. So as Christians, uh, we must move beyond mere discussion. We must move beyond mere just committing things to memory. Move beyond comprehending God's commandments. We must put them into action. Uh, Our focus should extend beyond understanding the commandments. God's calling is one of, of execution. When he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. When he says that, we've heard that before. We've read that verse so many times. Uh, Again, we've heard it. uh, We hear it a lot. So now, uh, as a Christian soldier, what do you do with that? What do you do with God's directives, His commands? It's a question, uh, how do you manifest your, your love for God? Well, you do so by regarding His Word. When we read it, when, I know it becomes monotonous, but every single time, uh, every Sunday morning, when I read the passage, I say, take heed of the perfect, inerrant Word of God. Do you believe it to be the perfect, inerrant Word of God? Verse 3 here underscores this truth of, of regarding God's word as what it is. It's, it's, it's his, his very breath 
speaking out to us. Verse 3 says, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Obedience serves as the, the highest testament of love. Think about that. Think about that in, in, in pertaining to the cross. John 3.16, I keep saying it every week for the past, this is week four. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The love of God. The love of God in that of the highest testament of love. Obedience. So when we see Christ as our example, we, we, we look upon Christ as his perfect, his perfect obedience Perfect obedience in, in, in all aspects, highlighting his atonement. Being obedient to the Father to, to, to wrap himself in flesh and come and die a sinner's death. Die in our place. Die the death in which we deserve. Bearing upon himself the, the sins of all those who believe. That's our, our, our mark. That's our example of obedience. It's a living sacrifice. So obedience serves as, as the highest testament of love. Uh, obedience is the proof of love. And this sentiment is, is mirrored in the Old Testament where God says, to obey is better than sacrifice. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 22. To obey is better than sacrifice. In the modern church context, uh, that principle still stands. It has not gone away. Right? Obeying God holds greater significance than preaching about obedience. Obeying God is, is greater significance than singing about obedience. Greater significance than conducting Bible studies about obedience. Obedience to God transcends these activities. To obey God is, is to execute the orders given by Him, the commander. times adhering to the commands of, of our Lord may appear challenging may appear burdensome but we always have to ask ourselves a simple question of, of why, why do I obey? Why do I obey these commandments? The answer to that unveils your spiritual maturity. Is it your, your Christian walk, is it dominated by a sense of obligation? Or do you obey out of fear? Fear of divine retribution? Or, or do you genuinely yearn to follow God's commandments, His directives? When John states that God's commandments are, are not burdensome, he contrasts the view with that of the world. The view that the world has, which often perceives these commandments as, as, as difficult, as tedious, as, as time-consuming. Nevertheless, true Christians, uh, we have to move beyond that. God will move us beyond that, that, that perspective. Christians are not to share in that perspective. Our motivation to obey God's commandments should spring from our love for Jesus. That's it. 
He is the very originator of these commands. He's the very originator of the love. So that should be the, the springboard of the love in which we should have for others, the, the obedience which we should have towards our Lord. And so this conviction here, it, it underpins John's assertion at, at the close here of verse 3 that God's commands are, are not burdensome. In the Greek, that term uh, literally means heavy or hard to bear. So when our love for God is genuine and we have been born of God, His commandments cease to be oppressive. They're no longer oppressive. If one is working and laboring, trying to gain salvation or trying to, to, to gain justification or, or, or any of those things in which are solely products of Christ and His atoning work. The commandments for sure will be oppressive. Because you'll never be able to obtain. You cannot obtain those things. So when we understand that, that what Christ has done for us in this, this calling to live a, a life of holiness. It's a calling that comes out of, out of understanding of what Christ has done and that it is finished and that there is no more labor in terms of trying to gain salvation. When Jesus says, he says, come to me all who labor right, and are heavy laden, he says, and I will give you rest. This is the rest he's talking about. The rest that can only be found in Christ and knowing what He has done on the cross and that it is finished. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So, while some may perceive Christianity as a system of, of rules, uh, viewing obedience as, as just grueling, that grit your teeth and having to just be dragged along, their perspective is flawed. It's a flawed view of Christianity. Our obedience to God originates from a heart of love for our Heavenly Father. Turning our duty into delight. Turning each and everything in which we are called to do into delight. Knowing that it's bringing glory and honor to the Lord if we are doing it in obedience. So the rationale for God's commandments lies in His love for us. Children sometimes misconstrue their parents' instructions and they, 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 they see them as being really harsh. And, and I think we can all attest to this as thinking back on uh, if you're older and, and, and out of your house and can think back on how some of the things in which your parents put in place and, and you're kicking and screaming the whole time and we're like, this isn't fair, this is harsh. But then, as maturity is, is increased, and that maturity reveals that these directives were, were stemmed from love. And so as parents desire the best for their children, so it is that our Heavenly Father desires the best for us as well. Um, now that best doesn't always mean what one's earthly desires uh, entail. 
And God's best doesn't mean big houses and a bunch of cars and a bunch of money and all that. No. He knows what's best for us and, and it surely doesn't entail those things. It doesn't have to entail those things. So obedience. Obedience in, in our Lord, obedience, when we understand that it stems from love for our Heavenly Father, it becomes liberating. Obedience then bestows this liberation. Now, walking with Christ, being a Christian in today's world, any, any time for that matter, upholding his, his commandments is it's no easy feat. I want us to also understand that. It requires the, the utmost spiritual strength. It, it requires reliance on God's empowerment. Reliance on the Holy Spirit and His strength. Living for God is not a simple task. That's why in Matthew 7 we see that there are two paths. He says there is a narrow path, at least the narrow gate. So it is hard. Few will find it. There is a large, wide gate that leads to destruction. He says many, many will find it. So it is easy. It's easy and leads to destruction. John's intent here is very distinct. He signifies that God never mandates without supplying the strength to fulfill His commandments. He will not place a, a yoke upon one's neck that they cannot carry. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Because of the strength in which He gives us, the Holy Spirit, to, to, to fulfill one's calling, to fulfill the commandments. So the, the beauty of, of the Christian journey lies in the fact that, that God equips us with His Holy Spirit, motivating and empowering us to, to execute His commands. This understanding is, is, is very pivotal for the Christian. When motivated by love, there's no duty, no calling that proves impossible. He gives us what we need in the time in which we need it. Just think back when we were going through Acts and just imagine if, I mean, right from the beginning, the Lord tells Paul that you're going to suffer greatly for, for, for the sake of the gospel. Right? So he knew that, right? But do you think Paul knew exactly what that would entail? Imagine if the Lord would have just rolled out a script for the Apostle Paul. This is going to be your life. That would have been so daunting for Paul to see all the things in which the Lord is going to take him through. It would have felt so burdensome to see it. So he just gives us what we need in the time we need it. So in each and every moment in Paul's life, the Lord supplied every need, supplied the strength to continue on, supplied the strength to be you know, in shackles in the inner parts of a Philippian jail, singing hymns and songs and, and rejoicing. 
So, so it is with Paul, so it is with each and every one of you who are believers in Christ. And he supplies the strength. He provides the, the needs. Um, and so, occasionally, Christians grumble about obeying God's commandments, uh, being likened to children, grumbling about obedience to their parents. Our love, our love for God is evidence when we are willing to comply with His will. He says that this is the love. This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. And I want to note, too, there's, there's no perfectionism in that. It's not John saying, when you obey perfectly, that's how you know that the love of God is in you. No. Now we talked about that before when he says the love of God is perfected in someone. That means it has hit his mark. Meaning that that individual knows the love of God and, and therefore knows the voice of the, the servant, knows the voice of the shepherd, and follows his commandments and with desire and fervency and joy. And knowing that it's not going to be perfect. I will fall short, right? which is the, the glorious understanding of the gospel, knowing that uh, we'll fall short, we'll continue to fall short, but Christ has not fallen short. He is the perfect obedient one that was the perfect sacrifice for sins. And so John, he, he, he categorically dismisses the notion that, that one can claim love for God while just disregarding his commands. One who says, I love the Lord, but yet doesn't take heed of the perfect, inerrant word of God. Doesn't see it as the perfect, inerrant word of God. His commandments are just brushed away. So repeated declarations of love, they hold no validity if not accompanied by, by action. Accompanied by obedient living. So the, the perfect, holy, inerrant word of God underscores that, that a lack of obedience to God equates to a lack of authentic love for Him. James Boyce, he, he sums up this verse, verse 3, very well. He says this, he says, The life of God within makes obedience to the commands possible. And the love which the Christian has for God and for other Christians makes this obedience desirable. The commands of the Lord should be desirable. One who has been born again should desire holiness, desire to follow the commands of the King. And so love, uh, obedience, these two birthmarks. And lastly here, the third birthmark is, is faith. Verse 4 here, it, it resounds and declares that everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. First off, where does faith come from? Same exact originator of love. Ephesians 2.8 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Okay, so it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that one may boast, so that no, no one may boast. Okay, so what he's saying there is this faith is not of our own. Right, just like the love, that agape love, right, that love for the brother and the love for the Lord that has been imputed into us through the atoning work of Christ by the Holy Spirit and resonates out. We're not the originator of, of that love. So it's not come from within. It comes from above. Being born of God. Being born from above. So it is with faith. So it is with faith. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast, but rather is a gift from God. Right? And then he goes on to say in Ephesians 2, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We need that love. We need that faith from above to walk in those things, to walk in it and to be his workmanship. So we just understand uh, that, that we stand as, as soldiers in, in the ranks of the captain of our salvation. And we're, we're marching forward on the battle. Church militant. We don't fight with the same equipment as the world. We fight with the, the spirit. We fight with the word. So this... John here, he attests, he says that faith is, is the triumphant because Christ is triumphant. So every day, every day we are confronted uh, with a, a trinity of, of formidable adversaries and that of the world, our own flesh, and the evil one. The world itself is the evil one behind the world system. When we look at the world, it's, it's often clothed in, in the dress of the enticing harlot. Right? Extending his hand, gesturing to us. Seductive whispers trying to, to tickle our ear and, and, and offering earthly pleasures. This suggests that, that true joy finds its source in, in its embrace, in embracing the world, constantly urging us to forsake our Savior, Jesus. And this world, it, this, the, the harlot, it seduces with an unparalleled glamour. Which is why we have so many warnings to, to put on the full armor of God, be prepared to fight these battles. If you didn't know that there's spiritual warfare going on every moment, well, there is. Constantly. So how then, how then can we emerge triumphant against the, the, the snares of the devil, against the, uh, the world and the glamour and the glitz of the world trying to, to, to pull us and entice us away from our Lord? 
John, he asserts that the key to, to daily conquest lies in understanding that faith equips us to overcome the world. Reflect on Hebrews 11. Uh, such a vivid testimony. 17 instances just hammering in the truth how men and women of the Old Testament triumphed by faith. By faith. Not by reason, not by might. By faith. Faith. Faith indeed conquers the world. And who is the originator of the faith? Christ. Christ. It is Christ. Christ alone. In verse 4, John, he proclaims that the believer as one who overcomes and has overcome. Overcomes and has overcome the world. So the, the victory, to some extent, is already won. Yet in another sense, we are still in the process of overcoming. We stand victorious, yet the battle rages on. Although Satan's dominion is vanquished, although he is, he is bound, he remains a foe to contend with. Understand that victory over the world requires a power surpassing our individual might. Faith emerges as our weapon, as our sword, a potent means of seeing the unseen, seeing the spiritual warfare that's going on. But when you see things in the world or, or hear things wherever, the news or internet or whatever, and there's just these red flags going off, it's not something that comes from within. That's spirit testifying to these, these spiritual warfare that's, that's going on. This seductive harlot that is trying to pull people's attention away from Christ. As daunting as the world may seem, Christ, His strength, eclipses it. Eclipses it completely. Envelops it. It's an inner power that's unmatched by the world. And it resides within and is accessible to all believers. It's the Holy Spirit. And so, verse 5 resounds when John, he proclaims, Who is it? Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It's a rhetorical question. Our union with Christ in salvation, our relationship with Him, empowers us, empowers us to, to, to conquer the world. Because He has already done it. He's putting all things subjected under Him. All things are being subjected to him because of his victory at the cross. It's not about rigid adherence to rules. It's not about sheer willpower. Through faith in Christ. Through faith in Christ, we recognize our identity as being uh, in that family of God, belonging to him. We abide in Christ eternally. Drawing sustenance and strength from his fullness, from him. John Yates, he captures this truth in uh, the hymn that he entitled, Faith is the Victory. He says this in that hymn. He says, I camped along 
the hills of light, ye Christian soldiers, rise. And press the battle, ere the night shall veil the glowing skies. Against the foe and veils below, let all our strength be hurled. Faith is the victory, we know, that overcomes the world. So therefore, verse 5 rings in our ears. Who is it? Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's believing in his names. That also entitles believing all in which his name encompasses. Which is knowing that I fall short of the glorious standard of God. I cannot obtain salvation. But yet he has obtained it. He has stood in our steed, bearing the sins. Bearing our sins. The wrath of God poured out upon him on that cross. Suffering the death that, that we deserve. Rising again three days later, showing his triumph over sin and death. His victory over sin and death. So all those that believe in him belong to him and share in that triumph. Share in that victory. When John raises this rhetorical question, what he's saying is, if Christians don't overcome then who can? No one. Our victory is different. It's an eternal one. Where the world says victory is here and now. Victory is climbing to the, to the highest of status. Victory is to being put on display with all your pride and pomp. To be celebrity status of sorts. That's what the world claims victory as. That victory will be momentary. That victory will go with the world when Christ returns. It will be gone. But those who are in Christ will stand victorious for all of eternity. So our, our victory then finds its source in faith alone, in Christ alone, not in and of ourselves, not in our congregations, not in our denominations. Only the Son of God, Jesus, stands as the epicenter of our triumph. So remember this passage here, 1 John chapter 5, 1 through 5. It's much like the entire letter of 1 John. It doesn't merely spotlight our actions. We're going through a lot of like tests, right, that John gives us. And it's not spotlighting our actions. Right? Loving our neighbor, for instance. Instead, it's investigating why we engage in these activities. Why do we love our neighbor as ourselves? Right? As we act as we do, we act as we do because we've been born of God and in our, our, our origin, our foundation lies in him lies in his love, his faith. The focus pivots to the motivation behind our deeds more than the deeds themselves. So the love for fellow brethren, the adherence to God's commandments, our, our conquest over the world, they're all motivated by the truth 
that, that we are his, that we belong irrevocably to Christ. They cannot be taken. They cannot be, be thwarted. So in light of this, in light of all this that John is, is, is expounding on, that, that our birthmarks in Christ are, are love, obedience, faith. Do you desire? Do you desire to live the victorious Christian life? And know that that victorious Christian life doesn't look like the definition of the world's victorious life. Again, going back to the Apostle Paul. The world will look at his life and be like, I don't want any part in that. Think of all the uh, different persecutions that Paul lists out. The different lashings and shipwrecks and beatings. By the end of his life, Paul looked like a hamburger. To the world, that does not look victorious. Think of the victory. The victory that, that the Apostle Paul has in Christ as he's reigning with Christ right now in heaven. Victory is eternal. That's the same victory that each and every one of us has in Christ. So be reminded, Christians don't strive for victory. Let me kind of contradict some of the things I've said. Let me expound here. We fight from victory. It's not for victory, but from victory. Christ has already secured victory for us at Calvary. Secured victory for us in His resurrection. And so, this morning is... As we partake in communion, um, as long as we get to have this joyful moment, the, the pinnacle of, of uh, the time we come together to worship, the pinnacle of Sunday, the Lord's Day, is partaking in, in the Lord's Supper. And so we get to be reminded each and every week and reminded now of this great victory of our Lord. So for those that believe in Christ, that that know that His victory is secured, that He accomplished all that He set out to accomplish in His earthly ministry, living a perfect life, accomplishing something that we cannot, so then therefore is able to be the perfect sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God without spot, without blemish, hung on that cross, and bore the sins of all those who believe. So resurrected three days later. So again, God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, shall not perish with the world, but have everlasting life with Him, with our King who stands triumphant. So when we partake in communion, we are reminded of as we eat the bread, his body that he has given, his blood, his shed blood in that sacrifice that covered the sins of all those who believe. And the reminder that he will return and he's going to gather his people and, and all those who are in Christ will stand triumphant with him for all of eternity. And we'll get to, to 
joyfully worship Him, be in His presence with completely unveiled faces. And what a great promise. Uh, what a great hope. Uh, and that's a hope that is without uncertainty. So let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your son, Jesus. And Father, thank you for the gift that, that he has given us and that of being able to partake in communion each and every week to, to be reminded of that great sacrifice. Father, I pray that you bless the elements, set them aside for holy use. That we partake in, in this ordinance with joy in knowing that it is finished. It is finished on the cross. Father, I pray that as we go out this week that your spirit helps us to, to love, to a greater love. Help us to be obedient to, to a greater obedience. And Father, I pray that you supply the faith, the faith we need in the time in which you have appointed. And we thank you for your spirit and your guidance. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen.